for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks. Today I want to talk to you about current events. I want to talk to you about what happened in Israel this week. Who attacked them? Why they attacked them? The Christian community's responsibility and what we should do about it? And I'm going to have a very pointed, hard conversation with you. Not for the sake of being hard, but for the sake of giving you the information, the revelation from the Word of God that you need so that you can stand boldly and confidently and declare the truth when the world around you is trying to tell you something different. Amen? That takes an incredible amount of intestinal fortitude to stand opposed to the rest of the world and tell them the truth when they refuse to hear it. But I want to tell you something. I'm going to read you two verses that I read to the group on Wednesday night as a source of comfort to you before I get started. And they're two of my favorite verses in the Scripture, and they're out of Daniel. Many of you are familiar with the text. If you're not, let me explain to you what's happening. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young Jewish boys, are under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar creates this large statue idol and commands that everybody in the nation bow to it. And these young boys, these young men, refuse to do so. And because they refused to do so, Nebuchadnezzar told them that anybody that didn't submit would be thrown into a fiery furnace and killed. As most of us are familiar with that story. We may not be familiar with the fortitude the strength of integrity and the conviction of these three young men, though. Listen to what they said. In face of death, by fire, they said, if it be so, if this is your plan, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Before I go any further, before I say anything else, I need you to understand two things. Your God is able and your God will deliver you from your enemy. Your God is able, everybody say able. able. And He will deliver you from your enemy. But that may not look like you think it's going to look like. The fact of the matter is, they continued to speak and they said this, but... Even if he does not deliver us from this fiery pit, even if death is our outcome, O king, that we are not going to serve you, your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Boy, that's brash. That's good. That's bold. They said, listen, I know God is able, and I want you to know God is able. I know God will, and I want you to know that God will. 
But more than any of those things, I need you to know that even if he is able and he will, but will not in a way that you want, it's still going to turn out for your good. Because 10,000 years from now, whether you die today or 50 years down the road, 10,000 years from now, this is going to be but a vapor. This is going to be but a mist of a memory of a memory at all. And eternity lasts forever. God will still keep you. The promise of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God will save them is still true regardless of what side of eternity they end up on. Amen? Why do I tell you that? I tell you that for this reason. Because I need the church to stand boldly against the evil that exists in the world and say, my God is able and he will save me. But I will declare the truth. I will do according to the word of God. And if it doesn't turn out that God saves me physically, I know that he will save me spiritually and I will be with him for all of eternity. That is the conviction of the church or should be the conviction of the church. Everybody okay? All right, we're going uphill from here. That's all the comforts you're getting today. No, I'm just like. I want to talk to you about current events. Like I said, what happened in Israel today and our responsibility as Christians to it. I think every pulpit this Sunday in America should be talking about this situation. Should be equipping their people to have conversations in the workplace and in their communities so that people know the truth of the Word of God. My job, every pastor's job, is to equip you to do the work of the ministry, to strengthen you through the equipping of the Word, to walk according to the Word of God. Amen? And you can't do that if you don't know what's happening around you. And so I had a sermon series developed I was going to start this week. I pushed it aside because sometimes you just need to hear from the pulpit what the Word of God says in regard to what's happening in the world. And here's what it says. On October 7th, Hamas, which are Islamic fundamentalists, invaded Israel from the Gaza Strip. In a completely unprovoked attack, unarmed Israeli citizens, men, women, and children were murdered, raped, tortured, and kidnapped. Day later, Israel declares war on Hamas. The question is, who is Hamas? Hamas is a fundamentalist Islamic group. That word is incredibly important fundamentalist, I mean. The media lies to us. This probably shocks some of you. For all of you that believe everything that the television tells you, I've got some property I'd like to sell you. But the media lies to us, and this is what they've lied to us, telling us since September the 11th, 2001 that those that adhere to fundamental doctrine are extremists in Islamic religion. 
They are so far outside the bounds of their religion that they have perverted it and the religion of Islam is really a religion of peace. I will tell you, none of those things are true. The people that will kill you, the people that did what was done on October the 7th are fundamentalist Muslims. Fundamentalism, by definition, means that they adhere to strict adherence to their particular scriptures. So they are adhering strictly to what the Quran tells them to do. They're not acting extremely. They're doing what their book tells them to do in regard to Jews and Christians. We should be fundamentalists. Christians should be fundamentalists. We should have a strict adherence to the Word of God. We should do exactly what the Word of God tells us to do. That doesn't make us extreme. That makes us Christian. What the Bible says, I am supposed to make Jesus known, then I am supposed to make Jesus known. If the Bible says I am supposed to live righteously, then I am supposed to live righteously. If I am exposed to extend grace and thanksgiving and mercy and declare the gospel, then guess what? I'm supposed to do all of those things because those are fundamental convictions from Scripture. So the difference between Christian fundamentalism and Islamic fundamentalism is mercy and grace versus submission at whatever cost. As a matter of fact, that's what Islam itself means. I can remember hearing in, so around September 11, 2001, in that, in that time frame, Islam is a religion of peace. Now I know what I'm going to say is about to get some hate especially when this hits Facebook and the internet and all that stuff. But sometimes you got to tell people the truth even if it makes them mad because it'll set them free first. But I can remember them telling us this. Islam is a religion of peace. I can remember one media outlet saying specifically, Islam means peace. Islam does not mean peace. Write this down. Islam means submission. That means that every person that is, an Islam, is a Muslim must submit themselves to Allah completely and His Word completely. It means that they should be a fundamentalist. It means that those who are not Muslim must be submitted by conversion or killed. Did y'all catch that? There is a sharp contrast between the God that we serve and the false God of the Islamic nations, of the Quran. And when I say false God, even then I say it with a small g a figment of a man's imagination. We have to tell them the truth. We have to be people of the truth. We have to get them to understand that fundamentalism isn't radicalism. Fundamentalism is strict adherence to what you believe. So here's the question. How many people are there how many people are Muslims and how many of them are fundamentalists? Here's the truth. 
There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world today. 1.8 billion Muslims in the world today. That ought to freak you out a little bit because just 10 years ago, there was 1.3 billion Muslims in the world. So they are growing at an ever-increasing rate. When Christians have stopped having children, they're having tens and 15 at a time. There's going to be a point in American history, according to the surveys and stuff that have done, if Islam keeps growing within the United States by the 2050s, 2054, I think is right, there will be enough Muslims in this country, they won't have to fight, they can vote in Sharia law. It's time we start having babies and start acting like we got some sense. I mean, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. God told us to pray. The first told thing He told us to do is to do what? Go forward and multiply. Anyway, do your job. That's right. And have fun doing it. Anyway, let's pay attention. There are 1.8. These are moderate Muslims. 90% of them are moderate Muslims, which means they have no intent on doing you any harm. This is not a Muslim bashing conversation. 90% of Muslims will cause you no harm. They are Muslims because their grandmama was Muslim. They're, they're Muslims for the same reason many of us are Christian. Because we got saved when we were six, baptized when we were six days and one year, six years and one day old, and lived like hell since then. But because our mama's Christian, we live in a Christian household, and we go to church on Sunday, we're Christian. But the second we split the church doors open, we don't act like Christians. That's 90% of the Muslim population, just like 90% of the Christian population. And it's all, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Amen? 10%, however, that is 180 million, are believing fundamentalists. They believe fundamentally and might financially and morally support fundamentalist activity. That means they will give money to, they will support in missions, they will agree with, but they won't take up arms with. But 1% of that 10%, which is 1.8 million, are fundamentalist Muslims. 1.8 million is the second largest standing military on earth, second only to China. But let me blow your mind for a second. It's still bigger than China's military because China, at two million soldiers, half of them are administrative soldiers that assist the combative soldiers. Guess where the 1.8 million are getting their administration and their money and they're being taken care of from the 10%? 1.8 million is the number of militant combatives willing to come here, probably not probably, are already here willing to kill you if it means you. that's what has to be done for you to submit to their false God and their false religion. 
I'm not trying to freak you out, man. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. An unprepared Christian is not a good Christian. An unequipped, uninformed Christian is not a good Christian. We need to be informed. Amen? So let me talk to you about how we ended up like this. How Islam ended up with this fundamentalist activity through Muhammad, the false prophet of a false guy. Muhammad was a rapist, a murderer, a warlord who fought in over 60 wars himself, and a pedophile. He's a pedophile in that he married a six-year-old girl. But they call him an honorable prophet because he waited to consummate that marriage until she was nine. And so he believes that he got a revelation from God. What he got a revelation from was the spirit of the Antichrist. And that revelation says that he should start a religion. And so he started a religion like most people try to start religions. By preaching peace and love and tolerance. And that didn't work out. He got run out of town. So he moved from Mecca to Medina where he decided then to start converting people by force. Built up a military force big enough to start overtaking other villages and cities and towns, caravans, built up his wealth and his army, and then by the sword took over one city, one nation after another nation, after another nation, and after another nation. Because God told him to do different than he told him to do before. He told him, be peaceful with them first. And then God gave him another revelation and said, make them submit however is necessary. I don't know about you, but my God doesn't change his mind. He received revelation over 22 years. And over and over and over, Muhammad got contradicting revelations. You want to know how you know that's a false guy? Because God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his love. He doesn't change. He is impossible to change because he is perfect. Perfect can't be changed unless it becomes more perfect, which means it wasn't perfect in the first place, or less perfect, which means it's not perfect now. Our God is perfect. No need to change. So now all these contradictions exist. How do they get away? How do they understand what they're supposed to do? Because one will tell you, well, I'm going to go over some of the contradictions in a few moments, but there are so many contradictions that they had to come up with a way to describe how and why the contradictions existed. And so they came up with, or they, they used the term, theory of NASK. Write that down if you want to research it. N-A-S-K-H. Just simply as I can put it, the theory of Knox says that the newest revelation negates the previous revelation. So essentially he said whenever Muhammad decided to change his mind, 
He could do whatever he wanted to do. It didn't matter what he said yesterday. I call that a liar. God calls that a liar. Swear until you're hurt. Make your yes, no, your yes, yes, and your no, no. Amen? Amen. But apparently Muhammad, the spirit of Antichrist, doesn't play by such rules. So let me explain some of these contradictions to you, and I promise I'm getting somewhere. I'm not here to talk about Islam except to set a foundation against what we're dealing with. In one place, alcohol is forbidden. In another, it's allowed. A surah, just so you know, is a chapter in the Quran. And so, if you'll compare Surah 5, 90-91, I'm sure most of you don't have a Quran in your house, or I hope you don't. But if you ever get challenged with it, you'd have the information to have. Surah 5, 90-91 says alcohol is allowed. Surah 47.15 says it's prohibited. That's a contradiction. It either is allowed or it is prohibited. In some places, Christians are good people and Muslims should be friends with them. That's Surah 620 or 662. Correction, 262. In others, it says they must be converted, taxed, or murdered by the sword. Surah 929. Man, the question is, for the unscholarly, for the uneducated, for the non-theologian, which is the first one? Which one's negated? Which one's still active? Right? That creates confusion. That's why they're able to tell you, now we're religion of peace. Look at this surah. This is what the surah said. What they don't tell you is that surah was negated by a newer revelation. God, the uh, Allah the small g God of Muslim, isn't even a good father. But according to the text of the Koran, he desires to lead his own people astray. This should bring us, this should cause us to catch air in our breath, in our, in our lungs. That's Surah 639. He does not help those who he leads astray. Surah 30.29 and desires to use those he leads astray to populate hell. Surah 32.13 Let me ask you a question. If you're going to serve a God, are you going to serve that God or are you going to serve the God that provides a way out of temptation? A God that sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you? A God who created heaven so that the devil might have a place to spend eternity, but a heaven so that you might have a place to spend eternity. And then he sent his son Jesus to ensure that you could be in that place with him. Let me tell you, if you don't understand the God that you serve, then you don't understand how good you've got it. Our Father is a loving Father. So there's so many contradictions. Let me read you the last two. It's the whole reason I'm talking about contradictions in the first place. The whole, <clears throat> the last two surahs verses regarding Christians and Jews, people of the book. This is what it says, which means these are the ones that are still active. Surah 489. Those who reject Islam must be killed. If they turn back from Islam, that means if they convert, but then the, 
they turn back, take hold of them, and kill them wherever you find them. That revelation still holds true. The final one, the last one before Muhammad's death, Surah 839, and fight them until there is no more unbelief or worshiping others besides Allah. And the religion and worship will all be for Allah alone in all of the earth. Guess what their job is? Guess what they want to do? Guess what their intent is? World domination through submission. Islam isn't a democracy. It isn't a religion. It's a theocracy. Which means it's a way of life. It's a government entity. It's the reason why there's no nation that is Islamic that also isn't governed by Sharia law. If they are ever able to get into the United States, become the, the majority population, vote themselves into office, Sharia law will follow, which means it will be okay, women, for you to be beaten by your husband. You will not be able to drive. You will not be able to leave your house without an escort. Men, you will fight for the cause of Allah. It will not be a good life for you. God will set a curse upon those people. Amen? And has set a curse upon those people. I've been in Israel. And let me tell you, we got close enough to the Gaza fence, the Gaza line, that it was absolutely incredible the difference between one inch of land and another inch of land. Everything on the Israeli side was green and lush and beautiful. Then there was a chain link fence, and right at that chain link fence was dirt and rock, and trash, and filth. It's like somebody literally took a bulldozer and scraped every type of fresh vegetation off the ground. That's the product of God's cursing. And I don't want to be part of that. Amen? So how do we make sure that we're not part of that? We do the Word. I'm going to answer two questions today, and I'm going to be about ten minutes over, just so you know. Why must we stand with Israel is the first question I want to ask. Do y'all know we're supposed to stand with Israel? Because God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham became the father of nations by faith, according to Hebrews 11 and 8. Listen to this. In chapter 11, verse 31 of Genesis. Let me find it here in my Bible. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and they settled there, him and his family. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then this happened. That took an act of faith. He told him, he said, you got to go from your country. You have to leave where you are. You ever wonder why God asked him to do that? Do you not think God could have placed faith in him or given him another way to prove his faith? 
I posit this to you. Back then, much like today, people's identity was founded in who they were part of and what they owned. And God is challenging Abraham to leave his people and what he knows and get a new identity by following him. He's saying, get rid of who you were. Follow me. Get a new identity in me through faith. And I will give you the promise of eternal life. Does that sound familiar to y'all? It ought to because that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's from the very first day of Abraham. The very first command and promise to Abraham. We see the gospel at work. God tells us, you follow me. Leave who you know. Leave what you know. Leave what you think you know. Get a new identity. Follow me in Christ Jesus. And I will give you the identity that you have been called to carry. And I will hold you and keep you into eternity. Praise God all through Christ Jesus. He says the same thing to us today. But he tells him to leave. And if he did, God told him, I'll give God told him. God told him, I'll give you a promise. Genesis 12:2 reads like this. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Sounds like a pretty good blessing. Pretty good promise. He tells, he tells him, I will give you a great nation. Can I tell you this? <clears throat> In Genesis 15.5, God pulls Abraham out of his tent. Some of you may know this. He says, and he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens. He's talking to a hundred year old man who's married to a woman who's barren who can't have children. He said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars. And if you are able to count them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He said, your number is going to be so unimaginable, you're not going to be able to count them. That's back before city lights and smog and all the stuff. He could see every star in the universe from where he was standing in the middle of the desert. And God says, I dare you try to count them all. Your nation will be better. I will bless you with more than what you can count right here. And he has. Amen? But, like we do, we try to provoke the promise of God in our life by stepping outside the promise God gave us. Remember, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was barren. And so they start rationalizing because we have rational minds. And Sarah goes to Abraham and says, look, bro, this ain't going to happen. But God promised you a son. God promised them a son. God promised you a son. 
go to my maidservant. Have a child with her. And they did. And Ishmael was the product of that union. Ishmael was outside the covenant promise of God. Ishmael is not part of the covenant promise of God. Do you all hear what I'm saying? Arabs, Muslims will tell you that they are in the promise of God, that they are part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. They are not. They are outside the covenant promise of Abraham. Amen? Everybody okay? Some of y'all looking at me like I'm half crazy. Ishmael got kicked out along with Hagar of the camp. Some other stuff happened. They got kicked out. And God spoke this over Ishmael. Actually over Hagar in regard to Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Where do the Arab people live in regard to Jerusalem and Israel? To the east of all of his brothers, Isaac. And his hand will be against everybody's hand. You want to know why so far? Do you know Israel at its lowest or at its most narrow point is only six miles wide? but it's surrounded by Muslim countries. And those Muslim countries have never been able to overtake Israel. You know why? Because the promise of God is that their hand will be against every other hand. They can never get along long enough to come up with a plan to destroy Israel. They end up destroying themselves because God protects and watches after His people. But I will tell you that Ishmael, not being part of the covenant, is where the Arab tribes descended from the Arab tribes, Muhammad, and from Muhammad, Islam. That is the seed of the Antichrist. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're always talking about the Antichrist. Let me tell you, anything that stands opposed to Christ is the Antichrist. You read your Bible. All right, so now that we know where we're at, I want to step aside from the Ishmael story for just a second and say that God was faithful to the promise He made Abraham. Isaac was born. His faith was tested again and again and again. He made him a great nation. He did bless him. He does have a great name. And through him, all nations have been blessed. How? How have all nations been blessed through Abraham? They've been blessed through Abraham's seed, which produced our Savior, Christ Jesus. And through Christ and Christ alone, the way, the truth, and the life, the only name under heaven by which a man can be saved according to 4.12. We have the hope of salvation. Not because of anything that we did, not because of anything that we can do, but because Abraham had faith 
to hear God listen and be obedient. Amen? You want to know why we stand with Israel? Because we are part of them. They are part of our family. We are their family. That's good. But what does it mean? It means we have a responsibility. The Bible tells us, here, I will bless those <coughs> who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. I get so sick of hearing that. Out of the mouth of mealy-mouthed, weak-minded, weak-spirited Christians, I could vomit. That's a call to action. To bless Israel isn't some flippant, ah, God just bless Israel, or some half-hearted prayer. You better straighten your spine and stand strong and bless Israel. What does bless Israel mean? It means more than some flippant praise or some flippant prayer. It means in the Hebrew to show favor and desire good. It means to take proactive steps to ensure the prosperity, the protection, and the preservation of the one who is to be blessed. Our responsibility is to take proactive steps to ensure prosperity, protection, and preservation for Israel. And you're all, oh, I'm just little old Jim and little old Lebanon. What can I do? Let me tell you what you can do. You can stop giving your flippant prayer and start giving your wholehearted prayer. Because let me tell you, the people that think the least I can do is pray don't understand the power of prayer. The greatest thing you could do is pray. But you know what you can also do? You can support missions that help support people in Israel. Not just the nation of Israel, but the people of Israel. You can write your congressman or your state senator. Believe it or not, they work for you. They need to be reminded that they work for you. Write them a letter and tell them, I stand for Israel. I expect you to stand for Israel. I need you to take whatever steps are necessary to ensure their prosperity, their protection, and their preservation. And if you're not able to do it, then I can vote someone in who is willing to do it for me. Because they are your representative. Bless Israel. Or be cursed. Amen? What is to be cursed is the opposite of being blessed. It means there's no promise of prosperity, protection, or preservation. As I said a second ago, they're our family. We're obligated to them. I think the two most succinct and beautiful verses in the Scripture that declare this truth, our promise is part of that lineage, is found in Galatians 3, 28-29. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's good. This is better. And if you belong to Christ, 
then you are, everybody say are, Abraham's descendant. Heirs according to the promise. That means you have part in the Abrahamic covenant. That means as he was blessed, you will be blessed. That means that the promise that he has is a promise to you. And we have to stand according to the word of God and do it boldly, not arrogantly. We have to speak for Israel. We have to stand for Israel. You know why? Because we aren't the root. We are the branch that's been grafted into the root. According to Romans 11, 17, and 18. We have been grafted into the root. If you, if you cut off the root, you kill the branch. Our own life is at stake. For me to curse Israel is for me to cut off my own head to spite the rest of my body. It just doesn't make any sense. Our blessing flows from the root. Is everybody okay? And to do otherwise, according to verse 18, is to act arrogantly. And in the book of Proverbs, God says there's six things, no, seven, that God hates. Anybody know what the first, the very first one is? Haughty eyes. Arrogance. So we better bless Israel because I don't know about y'all, but if there's a list out there of the thing that God hates, I don't want to be on the top of that list. I don't want to be on that list at all. But I definitely don't want to be on the top of it. Bless the root. Because we're the branch. We are because they are. Amen? Now, what I've asked you to do takes a, an incredible amount of intestinal fortitude. Because what I'm asking you to do is to take that with you out of these doors. And when you hear somebody say something contrary about Israel, to stand for Israel. When you hear somebody's in a pro-Palestinian argument, tell them the truth about Israel. You know, well, they may not like me or they may cause me some harm. My God is able and He will. But even if He doesn't, I'm not going to be silent to that. Amen? We can't be silent to that. My grandchildren are here today and my grandchildren will not suffer my silence or my inaction. Nor should yours. Amen? But it's a hard thing. And so the second question I would ask is why must we not be afraid? Because to stand in such adversity is fearful. Can create fear. Here's why. My God's bigger. I know y'all were expecting some great theological something. My God's bigger. When my pastor gave me this Bible, he gave me this Bible 10 years ago on the day that he ordained me. 
I beat the leather off of it one time and already had to have it rebound. The guy tells me that this one will last a lifetime. We'll see. But in it, he only highlighted one, one verse. And when I asked him why he highlighted only one verse and what, why he highlighted this verse in particular, he said, because you're a pastor now. And you're going to have to say some things that are going to be uncomfortable and they may create fear in you. But you better say them anyway if they're the truth. And it's Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Can I take a minute and break that down for you? Do not fear. That's the command. For I am with you. That's the comfort. I've been commanded and comforted at the same time. It says, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. When I was a young man, Josh and Lane will tell you, we used to do it together. We promised not to talk a lot about it. But we roll into a club or something, there'd be about eight, we'd roll in there eight or ten thick. And guess what we worried about? Nothing. There are eight or ten of us. And so we didn't worry about people that were there, what they might do to us, what harm they might call us. We didn't anxiously look about us because we knew there was nothing to worry about. But can I tell you, God's bigger than the crew I used to run with? that He goes before me and He is my rear guard according to the Word of God. And because He is for me and because He is with me, I shouldn't be anxious. And because He says, He doesn't, I love this, He doesn't say, for I am God. He personalizes it and says, for I am your God. Don't you be anxious about anything, Miss Tammy, because your God sees you. Your God knows you. Your God knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Your God knows exactly what you're thinking, exactly what you're dealing with, is capable of protecting you. He will and can. Amen? He said, I will strengthen you. I will help you. You don't have to worry about what's going on in your life. I am bigger than your problem. And I will uphold you by my righteous right hand, which means I will lift you above your circumstance that nothing in any eternal significance can come against you. And let me tell you, that should cause you comfort. That should cause you to tell the truth even when the truth is uncomfortable. You have to tell the truth because the truth sets people free. Now, the truth may make them mad first, but it'll set them free. Let them deal with their mad later. You tell them the truth now. Amen? That's my challenge to you. Stand. Don't be afraid. And I'm going to end with this. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. God is able and He will take care of us.
There's one last thing I want to say about Muslims. Because I don't want you to walk out of here, even for a split second, thinking that I'm spreading hate, because I'm not. 90% of Muslims, 99% of Muslims, won't put their hand on you. But let me tell you, we have a responsibility to them too. And that's to pray for them. This is what my Bible says. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That whosoever is a real kick in the shorts. Especially when we want to pick and choose who we're going to show grace and mercy to. Paul said he was the worst of sinners. Paul killed Christians, persecuted Christians, stoned, was present at the stoning of the first martyr. And look what God did with Paul's life. I'll tell you as quickly as this needs to stop, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. And I'll tell you one thing that will stop this fight forever faster than any bullet will. And that's the gospel. And we have to preach it. For it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then the Greek. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you and thank you for the truth, the boldness, the clarity of your word, if we'll just read it. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us in it. I ask, Lord, only that you give us a strength of spirit, a determination, a conviction to walk according to your word, according to your spirit. God, fill our mouth with grace and mercy and love and kindness so that ultimately we might have an opportunity to tell even what we might consider the worst of sinners about you. Because no life change truly happens until you happen in that life. God, we praise you, we thank you for this time together. I ask that you plant what's been said deeply into our spirits today. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done and the promise that you've given and then added us to. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.